Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Paul Hayward, the author and columnist, and by David Priest, the coach and columnist. This week's guest is West Ham striker Mikhail Antonio. He has his sights set on a European trophy in the Conference League. Further up the food chain, Manchester City face arguably the most significant game of the Guardiola era beat Real Madrid at the Etihad next Wednesday and a jewel-encrusted monkey will be off their back. Surely, Paul, they'd then go on to win the Champions League, wouldn't they? I think so, Mike. I mean, it's dangerous to underestimate either of the Milan clubs, but you get the feeling that this Man City-Real Madrid tie is, is a game between the two best teams, clubs in world football, you know, it's it's the ultimate club game, isn't it? And if we thought the the leg of the Bernabeu was was good, you know, just look at the return leg because it's one each. You wouldn't have looked at last night's game and thought that you could really pick a superior team, as in all cases when teams that good play, each has a phase where they're dominant, the other team comes back into it. They're both very good at soaking up pressure. They're both very good at you know, organising their attacking play. And it was fascinating from that point of view. Home advantage is obviously, obviously favours City in Manchester, but Real Madrid, as Sam Wallace pointed out in the Telegraph this morning, they've they got so many different ways of playing within a game. You know, they'll go quiet for half an hour and soak you up and then they'll, and then they'll, they'll hit you with these ferocious 10-minute phases of, of attacking. They've got these brilliant attacking players and obviously an incredibly strong midfield. So let's not forget that Real Madrid are quite capable of winning in uh, at the Etihad. And if they do, all the questions will again be dropped on Guardiola about whether he can win a, a Champions League with a team that doesn't contain Messi and isn't called Barcelona. Yeah, Luka Modric suggested afterwards, Dave, that they would go to City with faith, which I thought was a real key word, You know, given, as Paul said, they're, they're patient under pressure and they trust their nerve. There's no doubt that last season's win was almost fueled by this belief in destiny. Do you believe in something as intangible as that in football? I'm not sure whether it's, it's destiny, but it's certainly they have this belief now, like you said, that they can overcome anything. And what they are now is a terrifying counter-attacking side. That faith in in being able to, to win games also translates into... Defensively, that they, they, they can soak up anything. I think the way that they played last night and, and restrict, even though the the dominance that City had certainly in that first half, they're restricting City to to shots from outside the box. Now I know that I mean both goals come from unbelievable strikes from outside the box, but it's so important, especially when you're playing against City, to try and nullify threats as much as possible. And you, we know how they they create the goals by getting down into the half spaces, cut backs into the in the box and, and they restricted like I said they restricted them to to shots from outside the box and you've got a goalkeeper Courtois who's he's the world's best at, at what he does he, he defends the goal so well and it was just an unbelievable strike that he was beaten by so all of that all those components it gives up that, that belief that no matter what's happening in the game they can cope with it and on top of that obviously they've got incredible talent yeah, I must admit, I loved that Kevin De Bruyne goal. It reminded me of those stinger shots that you have in golf. You know, they travel about three foot above the ground. It was wonderful. You know, we heard a lot before the game about 
Erling Haaland, the global phenomenon. What was the marker headline? I think the monster comes. But he looked disconcertingly human, didn't he? Ha, he did. And again, that comes from the point that Dave was just making. You know, Real Madrid can stop you. Real Madrid can stop anybody shining. Now, part of Haaland's brilliance obviously stems from the supply he gets, the provision of great balls, particularly from De Bruyne. But if De Bruyne doesn't get to him, somebody else will, Bernardo Silva or one of the other attacking midfield players, Grealish. If you stop that, I think Real Madrid tried to stop that last night. You know, they achieved a, a measure of success. And he's, and he, nobody can do to Real Madrid what Haaland is capable of doing to the average Premier League side. So it, it's no great surprise to see him having a quieter night, particularly when all the hype around him was so immense. You know, you, you, you read some of the previews and thought he was going to walk in there and rip Real Madrid to shreds. It just doesn't happen like that at that level, does it? And actually, I thought, you know, the outstanding player was on the other team, Vinicius Junior, who who developed his game phenomenally. When I first started watching him, I thought, well, this is a guy who's, who's, who's obviously very talented, but he's a slightly wide, head-down player, decision-making, not always great, final third, end product, not always great. But my God, his game is developing. You know, he's, he's, he's looking up, his decision-making is so much better. He's sweeping the ball from side to side, making runs without the ball. And he's, he's developing into a phenomenal player. Haaland has fewer of those types of dimensions to his game, but you know I wouldn't start knocking lumps off his achievements this year because he's got 50-plus goals and he had a, predictably in some ways, had a quieter night at the Bernabeu. Yeah, I suppose when you look at it, Dave, there is a new team being built by Ancelotti, isn't there? It remains to be seen whether he'd get the chance to finish it. I find it incredible that he's underrated so badly or certainly disrespected by some of the criticism. You know, as Paul said, Vinicius Jr., 22, Rodrigo, 22, Camavinga, 20. Now, you add Jude Bellingham, 19, to that mix, that's some team for the future, isn't it? Yeah, that midfield's been one of the major components of the success they've had, especially with Modric and, and Cruz, and obviously they, they can't go on forever. And when you look at the, the options that they could have on top of Valverde, you know, Camavinga playing at left-back, 20 years old and beating a dap playing at left-back. Now, it, it, the incredible player that he is in midfield anyway at, at this age. Full-back, especially in possession, it's a piece of cake for him because he's got everything in front of him. But on top of that, he's got the physicality to get forward. And, you know, he dovetailed that with Vinicius Junior. They seem to have sort of, they've worked it out really well. They work really well together. Once you start adding the Chumani into that, and you bring Bellingham into it, it, it's just a midfield that has everything. It's, it's, you know, of course you've got the the guile of Cruz and Modric over the the last how many years they've been there, but you put Bellingham into that with all those other components. It's such a dynamic midfield that it it just gives them everything. And Bellingham is as a midfielder, he's probably. He, now looking at the most complete uh, midfielder that we've ever produced, even at the young age that he is, because he, he simply has everything. And when you've got somebody who's got everything at the level that he has, Real Madrid's probably the only place that's, <laughs> that's fit for him. Because, mm. you know, we've been lucky enough, Paul, haven't we, to, to spend quite a bit of time at the Bernabeu over the years. The nature of that club has always fascinated me. That They do seem wedded to this idea that they deserve Galacticos. Does that sort of feed into their self-image when, you know, they're at a time where they're so desperate for additional income that they're still pushing the um, the Super League idea? Yeah, they're very clever at preserving this idea that <clears throat> all great players end up at Real Madrid in the end. In fact, you know, they'd go even further and say, if you want to be remembered as a truly great player, you're going to go to Real Madrid. Now, their record in the Champions League justifies that, really. If That is the pinnacle in European football. Real Madrid is, is, is the best club to play for in European football. I don't care what anyone says. Forget the money. It's the, it's, the, it's the record in Europe and the prestige and the glamour. And they're brilliant at maintaining that, even when actually financially, you know, they're not, they can't really compete with the Premier League clubs anymore. So they'll try and get Bellingham in there because Bellingham is the next great number eight and the great next great all-round midfield player in European football. And they'll do that partly to preserve this myth, this self-image they've created, but partly because they are, let's face it, incredibly good at renewing themselves and, you know, and, and spotting the next player they need to go for. 
But financially, ultimately, if it carries on the way it is with money flooding into the Premier League from nation states and so on, yes, those clubs, all those big European clubs are going to have to find new ways to compete. And the Super League was the was the contrivance they came up with. Mm. Just very briefly, Paul, do you expect Haaland to eventually end up there? Uh, logically, yes, but if if City stay on the road there on now and he gets very settled and happy there and he realises that the whole team is going to play for him and around him and that he can be a great player there for 10 years and Guardiola stays, there's a chance he might not go anywhere, I guess. But if he's going to go anywhere, Real Madrid will be the only place to go. Mm. Yeah. Meanwhile, Dave, in, in other world domination news, City have bought their 13th club, Bahia in Brazil, you know, their last title, 1986, finished no higher than eighth since 2001. But obviously they're a convenient platform and almost like a holding pen for promising young players. You know, you're in the game. The game is expanding globally. You know, you're coaching in Montserrat. Is this multi-club model the future now? Yeah, it, it certainly is. But I mean, you know, if you look at Manchester City's... Um, their motivation for for doing this it's always been the case that they wanted to be included in the tap into the the south american model i think before they got i think it was fc talk in in uruguay the model was always geared towards doing what a club like shakhtar donetsk had done a few years back the success they had had in bringing brazilian players over and developing them selling them on so they they want to be they want to be at the forefront rather than you know having to pay these extortionate sums. They want to be the ones that are bringing them over and developing them as well, and that's what this gives them. And you can see that however many they've clubs they've got in India, China, and Japan, Australia, places like that. This is the big one for them. This is the one that they really wanted, and for them to have a, a club, it's a decent sized club. Let's uh, you know it's not one of the big ones, obviously, but it's. It gives them a real big foothold in, in South America now where with the rules changing around um, Brexit and making it easier for clubs to sign players from the rest of the world, it just makes massive sense to for them to, to do what they've done. Yeah, it does. Other European news, Paul. West Ham have their two-legged semi-final in the Conference League against AZ Alkmaar. I just want to focus, if I may, and it's probably no surprise, on Declan Rice. I don't know if you've seen that that video that was going around social media about him comforting the young fan who was in tears and then giving him his shirt. I just thought that was fantastic. His character is obviously very, very sound. How good is he as a player? Because, you know, when you're talking about, or when West Ham are talking about, well, you can have him for 120 million, you've got to be something special, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, that's around about the price that Jude Bellingham would fetch, I would imagine. So West Ham are saying effectively that Declan Rice is as good as Jude Bellingham. They're very different players. And I think I think Jude Bellingham is the, is the classier player. You know, he has more sort of natural ability. But personally, I would buy Declan Rice tomorrow if I could afford it because he brings a tremendous central midfield kind of all-round plays. He's tenacious, he's relentless, he, he can pass, he can get forward, he can screen. He has this charisma, he has this character. I think his personality is worth quite a lot of that £120 million, actually. I mean, I know it's people might think, what are you talking about his personality for? But the effect he will have in a team, I think, is is quite substantial. And the effect he would have at a club like Arsenal, for example, who still need maybe leaders and strong characters and people with infectious enthusiasm and ability to go with it, you know, he fits that bill. He certainly does. When you look at it, Dave, I think we can probably assume that they're now safe from relegation. Will that give them an extra freedom of expression in these European ties that they face? Yeah, what it does is it just changes the perspective on the game. There's no sort of, there's nothing holding them back. There's no nothing in the the back of their minds thinking that um, they need to make up for any deficiencies in the league or that it can be something that they're, they're having to rescue their season by. It can be full positive focus onto it. And of course, it, uh, Alkmaar won't be a walkover by any means, but certainly, you know, going into this game and beyond where they can look at it with real positivity and 
not that there's expectation on them to, to win it now because they, they are the favourites to win it, but just the fact, like I said, it's full positivity going into it. And to ally with that, I think it'll just lift any um, sort of ill feeling or negativity that might have been in the stadium. Should things go wrong in the, in the game, you know, if there's any setbacks in the game, you know, sometimes it can turn a little bit quickly where now I think everyone should be back in the back in the team from the off no matter what's happening in the game and making sure they just push them over the line yeah Paul Roma on the other side of that draw which brings us to a certain Jose Mourinho there has been a lot of talk about him being drafted in a PSG one what would that say about PSG and where they're going and two is it strictly necessary <laughs> well, well, PSG is a club where the manager's been subservient to the superstars. And I don't see Jose Mourinho being subservient to anyone at any club, any superstar. So that would be yet another example of a club claiming to have a mission statement and a philosophy and then just ripping it up one, <laughs> one day under pressure and deciding, ah, oh, that, that doesn't work. Let's try, let's try the other thing. And, and Mourinho... I don't think he would tolerate an awful lot of what goes on at PSG and, you know, you get fireworks. Unless he's decided he would just go there, take the money, have a quiet life and win the league every year, fine. But obviously he'd be under pressure to win the Champions League. That's that's where the, that's where the needle would be for him. You know, could he do that with those players? Because nobody's managed it yet. Mm. Well, Michele Antonio at 33 is looking to the future, but his past is central to his philosophy. With his background, he appreciates the magnitude of the opportunity to win a European trophy. So, Mikhail, welcome, first of all. What strikes me are the similarities between you and another guy we've had on the pod recently, Tyrone Mings. Same sort of background, very strong mums, rejection early. You proved yourself in non-league and then came into the game maybe with a slightly different mindset to other people who've been through the conventional route. With your background, have you got a bigger world view than most players? I don't know if I've got a bigger world view than most players. I just feel like I have that hunger. It's instilled me from obviously the rejections that I've had when I was younger. Obviously, it's taken me some time to actually get into the league and to get to the Premier League. So I say it's the hunger that I just want to keep going. I've finally managed to get the opportunity to live my dream and I don't want it to end. So where most people see that my age now, how older I'm getting, and but I don't see an age. I just see a person who just loves playing the game that he's always wanted to play. And each year I just see myself getting better and better because each year my stats are getting better and better. So mm. hopefully, I can just keep doing it and keep playing the game that I love. Yeah. What are the formative experiences that you've had? What were the key sort of learnings that you had growing up and then developing in the game to the player you are now? The most important thing I would say for me is learning that each individual has a different opinion. One thing I've definitely taken from that is there might be one person who might not like the way I play, might not like the attributes that I have, that I'm quite raw or how I play but there's another person that will. As long as you keep believing in yourself and keep believing that you're doing the right things and what you can do can attribute to the team, then nothing really can stop you. Mm. You're also providing platforms for others. Like Tyrone, you've got a football academy, right? That combines football with education. I had a background in research, I did a book and a film around academy football where you see people's childhoods being lost to the game. What are the important things that you can do for the next generation in an academy setting like that? Why I've done my academy setting up is because obviously when I was younger, there wasn't much opportunities from non-league to get into the league. Teams are now looking at non-league more because obviously quite a few breakthroughs. There's me, Tyrone Mings, Callum Wilson, Jamie Vardy. So there's more opportunities now because people see that there's some quality players down there. But I'm not doing that just to get players or young kids into professional football. I'm doing it to give them other opportunities. Because the players that who might not just be good enough to be pro, just give them other opportunities as in 
There's so many other jobs in football. If you love football, you can do something else inside there. There's apprenticeships where you can also become a journalist, you can become a coach, you can become a sports scientist. I'm giving these kids opportunities that if you don't become a footballer, there's something else that you fall back on. Mm. And letting them know that football isn't just the only thing you can become. And you do need to have a backup plan. You do need to have a B plan because if you don't become a footballer, you need to have something else to fall back on because end of the day, there are billions of people in the world and there's only 72 teams professionally. There's only 20 teams in the Premier League. Yeah. What also strikes me about that initiative, you're working with Errol Bignall, yeah. who goes right back to start with you, doesn't he? You know, I've seen a lot of unheralded people doing fantastic stuff in the community. And I'm thinking of, I don't know if you know the guy, the guy called Stedman Scott in Brixton. Brilliant in terms of shielding the kids from gangs, temptations of easy money, and using almost foot to save lives. Can you identify with that? 100%. That's one of the first things I always say when I meet the kids at my soccer school. I go, if I had a million pounds in cash, or I said I'll give you 100 grand into your bank account, what one would you take? The majority of times, they all go, I'll take the million pounds in cash. I go, it's 2023 now. I said, that million pounds in cash, you can't really do anything with that. You might be able to buy some jewellery, but you won't be able to buy a car. You might be able to go out to a club and splash, but you can't invest that. There's nothing you can actually do other than spend it. I'll give you 100 grand in your account, then you can invest that. You can put that down on deposit on a house. You can put that down on deposit on free houses, or you could put it in bonds. But one thing you know you can do is invest that money and make more from that 100 grand than you can with a million pounds in cash. Which has been earned through drugs and everything else. Yeah. yeah. So I say that for that purpose only, that all you guys, any kids who are out there going out, doing the drugs, and trying to think that this money's going to be the reason why you're going to be a millionaire. You're never going to become a millionaire by doing that. Only thing you're going to do is go into jail or lose your life because that's the life that you're, you're putting yourself in and that's what happens the majority of the times. So. Yeah. Could you easily have been lost? Easily, 100%. There was three gangs in my school when I was growing up. I was a bit of a fighter growing up with a bit of a short temper. And, like, I did get approached. And if it wasn't for my older brother, I very likely would have joined again. Mm. You've got a reputation for being grounded. Is that the legacy of where you've come from and how you've progressed? 100%. Like I just said two minutes ago, is like I was a bit of a short-tempered kid, and it wasn't until I was 14 where I used to constantly get into fights and stuff. And then I turned 14, and the world completely changed around me, where people were no longer using their fists to fight. It was all about knives, mm. and it kind of just made me realise that one fight is not worth my life. Mm. The next reason that always keeps me grounded is my family. Mm. I might be Mikel Antonio West Ham, all-time Premier League goal scorer, but I go to my mum's house on a Sunday, I'm making the teas because I'm the baby in the family. And no one sees me as that Mikel Antonio West Ham player. Mm. They all see me as Mikel. Mm. You scored important goals to keep West Ham up three years ago. It's a very pressurised situation. You know, I talked to Steve Cooper last week about Forest situation, for instance. Do you enjoy the sort of jeopardy of these games? I wouldn't say I enjoy them. I, I'd rather be safe. <laughs> but um, to be fair, people have said it to me. It's like, whenever the team's in trouble, you always somehow manage to turn up and try and pull them out. It's just one of those things where I don't know. I, I actually couldn't even tell you the reason behind it is how I grew up and how I've always played is I always put myself, I've always used to playing under pressure. Mm. Um, relegation scraps, going from non-league, constantly going on trials. And these are the things that I did when I was young. Because I constantly had to go on trials, I constantly had to be nervous, constantly putting myself under pressure. And I feel that kind of just stead me in these situations where I don't crumble in these situations and I thrive from. Mm. We had a chat on the pod last week about the changing nature of the game in terms of what I'd call blue-collar clubs, like West Ham, Forest, Everton, yeah. Leeds that they're almost old-fashioned now in some ways. What are the experiences like when you're playing to a fan base like this, at a club like this? 
It's quite crazy because you have the diehard fans where they live for the club. Live for the club, they are, no matter what, they're there, ride or dies. They just want you to work their hardest for the team and that's all they want. They don't care if you win, they don't care if you lose, but they, show you, they want you to fight and grind it out and get the result that they want. And then you have another percentage of the fans where they just want the world and they're not realistic. Mm. Um, so we could go on a five win, five game streak, win of games, and then we'll lose one and they want to boo. And, but the thing is, that's just how it is. That's the fan base that you've become and that's the fan base you get used to. And being in this situation, I've been at the club for eight years now, being in that situation, literally you, you feel the tension. You feel the tension and you've seen fans fight each other because the hardcore fans are like, nah, like believe, blah, blah, blah. And then other fans are going, nah, being quite fickle, if you say, mm. and going, no, no, you're not good enough, blah, blah, blah. So you see that it's not just at West Ham, it's at, at Leeds, it's like all those clubs that you say, that the diehard fans rival against the other fans who are quite negative, basically. Yeah, I'll get slaughtered for saying this by the fans of both clubs, but this place reminds me very much of Millwall, which is a club I know well. <laughs> um, now, you are still in Europe, though. What would a, a European trophy mean to you and this club? It mean the world. Obviously, in my career, I've won the JTP final, and I've won a few promotions to the Premier League, to the Championship, but it's nothing compared to a European Cup. It's nothing that, like, those things, and you can't even compare it. So, at the stage I'm in my career, to have an opportunity to win something like that, it would mean the world to me. And obviously, something for the fans, for the West Ham itself, West Ham's not won the Cup in so many years as well, and for it to be a European Cup as well, it would be massive. So, it will show everything that we've done over the last three years. It's just a great way to finish things off, especially that it shows that we're still moving forwards. Mm. Even though in the Premier League we've not done the best, it still shows that we're moving forward. Mm. What are your remaining ambitions? You know, I've read somewhere that you're talking about wanting one day to own the club. Is that true? Yeah, um, that was definitely one of my main ambitions. I do want to own the club. I do feel like I've got a lot of ideas that I can run through. And like, I was thinking of going back to Tuna Mitchum, maybe buying Tuna Mitchum. But it's just, I'm quite intrigued by businesses. I'm quite intrigued of moving things around and getting things from the ground up and upwards. So that's why I opened up the soccer school because I want to get the kids from non-league, get them through how high we can get them into the professional game. Or mm. if we don't do that, then I can hopefully work them into media or something like that, or help them be a coach and hopefully they'll become a professional coach one day. So those are the things that kind of intrigue me and owning the club and being able to do that from the top would just be a dream of mine. Mm. You've also spoken about you know, a long-term plan to get into the media. And it seemed you've thought it through. And it reminded me, a long, long time ago, I was with Gary Lineker in Hiroshima in Japan. And he was coming towards the end of his career playing in the J-League. And it was basically, I know what I'm going to do now. That certainty, and it didn't work out too bad for him, did it? <laughs> um, what is it about a media career or a subsequent career that attracts you? I just feel like I'm just happy with the freedom that you have in it. Obviously, being in football, it's quite scheduled, quite regimented, mm. where basically you get six weeks off and that's in May, June. That time off and that's time off again alone. Your whole career is basically told what days you're in and what days you're out where you need to be at this point in time. I like that the freedom that you have of being in the media, that you can sign up to jobs whenever you want to, or you know that these are the certain times that you need to be somewhere, but then the rest of the time you're off. You'll have the freedom of doing whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. And also, I just feel like it's something that matches my, my personality. It's somewhere that I can show my personality and you get to see my personality live where only times you get to see my personality now mm. is when I'm doing interviews or, mm. that's, yeah, when I'm doing interviews. Other than that, everyone just sees me as another footballer. Does your personality come across on the pitch in the way you play? I would say bits of it shows that I'm a hard worker, shows resilience, shows I'm a fighter. I say that part of my personality shows in, but it doesn't show my, my character. 
as in quite down to earth, funny chap, someone who's easy to talk to, but no one really sees that until I do interviews. Mm. So as a, f a final point, and I don't want to wish your career away here, but do you ever allow yourself to focus on the probability of a life outside football? And if you do, what do you think you'll miss most about it? I definitely do focus about life outside football. I started doing that since I was 30. Everyone can see that I started shaping my life towards the presenting side of things already over the last three years. Mm. Um, by starting my podcast, I did my own podcast. But what I would definitely miss from football is the camaraderie, the changing rooms, the training. Like, when you first start playing football, only thing you look forward to are the matches. Then once you get into your latter years of football, it's not really the matches that you look forward to anymore because the matches more become a job. It's the training, it's the banter you have in training. You just enjoy the moments leading up to the game and then, and then the game comes and win or lose. You lose, you're down. You win, you're buzzing. So that's why it will definitely be the training and the changing rooms for me. Yeah, because go right back to the start. It's all about being not grateful for what you've got, but you recognising what you've got. Yeah, 100%. And obviously scoring the goals and the rush of the fans. Good. Have you ever actually done a celebration, you watch one back and you thought, maybe not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one me stroking the carpet. <laughs> I got me quite a banter about that one. Go yeah. it, looked a bit, it looked a bit seedy, that. <laughs> anyway, mate, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate no, thank it. you. Thank you. Well, I found that a fascinating chat, really interesting, bubbly character. He talked about the importance of self-belief, Dave. How hard is it to sustain that when you're on the swings and roundabout of a normal career? I mean, it's hard enough anyway, but like the, the route that's, that Mikhail's took is one that's it's filled with, with potholes and huge knocks and... And to come through that, one, it gives him the belief that, you know, that he is good enough now and that he's earned the right to be where he is. He's, he's earned his, his place in, in Premier League football. But I think what it does as well, it, it gives him something that many other players who maybe have their, a routine or come through Premier League Academy and have a, maybe a smoother route into. What, what it gives him that they don't have is probably a, a feeling that... Not that he's not quite good enough, but that he's always got something to prove. And you, you heard him talk about even the age that he's at now, that he feels like he's getting better all the time. And and that's because, like I said, it's important to feel that you, you are good enough to be there and you, you've got the qualities. But always to have that underlying thing where it's, you know where you've been, you know that it can be taken away from you. You've seen others fall back down by the wayside and... Talking about going, going on trial, there's, there's nothing more soul-destroying sometimes for players going on, on trial at clubs and, and getting getting a no, getting turned down. And it gives you a steal to, to be able to, to succeed. But like I said, that's, I don't know whether it's it's not being good enough or just that you have to, you always have to feel like you prove yourself. That's more important than than anything else that's that he's acquired along the way. Mm. Yeah, there was a reminder there, wasn't there, Paul, that there are, are many routes into the Premier League. What aspects of his character and his background gave you the best insight into why he's prevailed? I think probably, um, as Dave said, the, the fact, if, you've, if you're used to coming through adversity in life and if you get to the age of 16 or 17 when you make your debut and you're, you're, you're already schooled in the idea that life isn't straightforward, life is difficult, you have to fight for things and that well, people will try to stop you and put you down and, and all the rest of it. If that's already in your head when you start a career as a professional footballer, that's a, that has to be an advantage in some senses, particularly when things are going badly. Because when things are going badly, you're less likely to shrink, I guess, or hide or just hope the manager gets sacked or go through the motions and you can see it still in some players who haven't had the sometimes cosseted academy upbringing that they, they are better equipped 
to cope with life at the top in football when it's not going well. And he looks like one of those players to me. Yeah. What about the nature of the club, Dave, and also the fan base? I thought it was you know, very interesting in him talking about you know, the hardcore fans having a you know, dispute, let's put it charitably, with the basically the tourists who turn up, who want everything on a plate today rather than tomorrow. What about that club? Because it's a blue-collar club, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but also I think that's what his background and how he's arrived at West Ham gives him a greater connection to, to the people who he feels cares most about it. As a player and, and a coach, you, you get off at the, the, the team bus at stadiums and it's the same people there at, at every game. It's the same people who are greeting you. It's the same people who, at the end of the game, they're waiting for you to come out. They're waiting for you to, to sign something or just to say well done or to commiserate you and, and, and be supportive. And he can associate with that because... Let's be honest. I mean, most of the people who who do this and spend all the hard-earned money on travelling everywhere to watch their team probably aren't the ones who are the most affluent. They're the ones who are sort of committed to the club and have and worked so hard for to to follow the club everywhere. And because of what he's done, he can associate with that. And I think that West Ham's been a perfect club for him, and in many respects. Mikel Antonio made a fascinating point about fan bases and the fact that they're not a single entity. We, we think of fans as a single tribe, but he drew that really clear distinction between people who, you know, you can win five games on the trot and they'll say, that's good, that was fun, thanks very much. And then you lose the sixth game and they're outraged and they're screaming on social media, they want somebody sacked, they're complaining about the players. And it's that sense of entitlement that a section of, of modern fans have it must be really galling to the players because nothing is ever enough for them. They're incredibly fickle. But there's, an, there's another group of supporters who are more stoical and they've seen the ups and downs over many years. They understand that it's, it can't always be good and that it's mostly bad. And they'll take the hits and they'll, they'll moan in the pub, but ultimately they'll turn up again the following week and they'll give you their support. But I thought Mikel Antonio identified that really well. You know, the, the problematic ones, the ones with a sense of entitlement. Mm. And you know, they do, or they certainly have been playing under pressure at the wrong end of the table, Dave. Again, Mikhail talked about, look, you just don't crumble. Is that the motto for any team trying to avoid relegation? Don't crumble. Yeah, and it's, it's probably easier said than done. But I think, you know, even just going back to the fans now, I think if you if if you look at all the teams that are in still in danger of going down and still fighting against relegation, you know you look at the the fan bases and the the difference between them and their attitudes and you, you know Everton seem to still be fighting and and trying to get behind the team and and same with West Ham even though like you said they're probably just out of it and you have other sides where there's like it's almost like a resignation that it leads that they're doomed. Or that, uh, and, and even at Leicester, that they because of the way the team are performing, that they're just not, they've just not no faith, and that they they're going to stay up. Just tying it all in with what Miguel was saying about the with fan bases, it's just the, the fact that they can be a huge help. They can be a massive part of of how a team does, and the, the fact that I know people say that you know we pay the price of a ticket, we you know we can say what we want and be how we want, but. Just make, it can make a huge difference to a, to a team when margins are so fine like they are at the moment between the sides. Hmm. I don't know if you agree, Paul, but there seems to be a consensus emerging that, that Leeds, Leicester and Southampton are the favourites to go down. There's a broader issue here. All of those three clubs, to a greater or lesser degree, essentially talent ID, development, sell-on models... Is their plight an indication that it doesn't necessarily work at the highest level, you know, despite the success enjoyed by by Brighton and, and Brentford and clubs like that? Probably, Mike. Yeah, I think I think that I think every club has convinced itself that 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 is the model: talent identification, data use, scouting, turning players over, a constant churn, if you like, and. And 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 you and you see this. You see you see people trying to get round the problem of of the fact that Man City and Newcastle are untouchable financially. And it's it's natural that they should they should look for these models. But you have to be good at it. And Brentford and Brighton are exceptional at it. 
and not everybody can be exceptional at it because it's an incredibly competitive market. But I think if you if you add into that, if you try and do that and then build instability into your club, you're asking for trouble. I mean, so there've been 14 sackings, this managerial sackings, I think this season, you know, we're even sacking interim managers now <laughs> uh, and replacing them with interim, interim managers. And if you look at the, the 14 sackings and ask yourself how many, how many good ones are the, how many teams have improved for the manager being sacked? I'm running it at about 25%. So you'd, you'd say Bournemouth, Aston Villa, Wolves. It may turn out that way at Everton if the 5-1 win for them at Brighton is a sign of how they're going to finish the season. Palace are safe, but they probably would have been safe with Patrick Vieira anyway, in my view. So, so the sacking culture is about 25% successful for my money. And, and again, you can have this clever model and you can bring in all these analysts and data scientists and you can spot people in remote South American countries. But if you create instability at your club, it's pointless. Mm. And let's not forget, Dave, the financial implications of relegation. Leicester, for instance, have taken out loans secured against Premier League TV money up to the start of the 25-26 season. You don't have to be a financial analyst to work out that there's a big crisis looming there, isn't there? Yeah, it's a, it's a time bomb waiting to go off, especially the, the position that they're in now. And certainly, no guarantees about them coming straight back up as well. And the obvious sort of deficiencies that are there to see because of the lack of investment. And and of course, I think that come, just comes from the, uh, is it Sri Vedana Prabha, the Ayawati, the son of the previous owner who's, who's interested in the club, just basically isn't the same as his father's. And, you know, his commitment isn't the same. And certainly I can see the club change his hand in, in the not too far distant future because it requires a commitment, it requires massive investment. And if it's not there, then they don't replace players that's, that need replacing. They never replaced Schmeichel. They never replaced Fafana last season. And it's that those defensive deficiencies that have cost them this season. And goal scoring, they're a top 10 club. But, but at the back, they've, they've been a mess for much of the season. Mm, yeah, John Terry seems to have his work cut out there. Let's put it like that. They play Liverpool at home on Monday night, which is obviously a key game for them. How ominous is it that Klopp's got his mojo back and they've got momentum behind them? Is that momentum going to be enough to uh, overtake Manchester United? It could be because Liverpool know how to close out a season. You know, if, if they kind of decide to win their last eight or ten games, they probably will, unless Man City are one of the opponents. And, um, <laughs> you know, they're so well-versed in it. They've got the quality of player. You've seen these Liverpool players switch back on again and, and get about their work and apply themselves. And, and, and it, quite often, it's as simple as that, really. They're doing their jobs at the level that they've been doing their jobs for the last five years, and that's bringing them wins and it's bringing them momentum. Man United don't have that capability, really. They, you know, if, if they get into the Champions League this season, they're going to stumble over the line, really. They lost in four days. They've lost to Brighton and West Ham. They're not playing well. They were slightly lucky to get through that FA Cup semi-final. And, you know, I think they've reached the limits of their ability. So they are getting hunted down by... Liverpool, there's no doubt about that. There's not much advantage either way in the in the run of fixtures until the end of the season. You know, no, neither of them have got an easy run or a difficult run. But the way Liverpool are going and the way Manchester United are wobbling, I certainly wouldn't rule out seeing Liverpool in the Champions League next year. Mm. And the other relegation teams, Leeds are at home to Newcastle on Saturday lunchtime, Dave. The big Sam factor, what's your take on it? Is it myth or magic? I think it'd be interesting to see the reception that he gets from from the Newcastle away fans. That um, after successfully keeping Sunderland up in two thousand and sixteen, consequence of that was relegating Newcastle in the in the process. So that's an interesting one, and also that his background with Newcastle that it didn't it wasn't really successful there either, was it? But I think that you know myth or magic. I'll probably say myth now because at, at that time I know he's had sort of successful. Stints at, at, at Palace keeping them up and Everton uh, finishing eighth place. But at the moment, it just feels like that football's moving on such a pace now. And it's, you know, if you look at some like Sean Dyche, Sean Dyche is the modern day Sam Allardyce. He's the one that's, you know, he's at the forefront of everything and uh, what a modern manner should, should be, but in the same style and the way that they play. But it just seems to be a little bit more, um, 
the way that Everton approached the game the other night, for example, I think the the way that they nullified Brighton's threats, it's something that I'm looking at Big Sam and I'm thinking that he can't do that with a with a lead side. It's all about what the tools are at your disposal, and I think that I, I can't, I just can't see it ending well. Mm. What about Eddie Howe, Paul? Last heard complaining about opposition game management. Is that a case of the biter being bit? <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Uh, game management is definitely on the increase, isn't it? And we are getting these 10 minutes. There's a lot of vulnerable goalkeepers all of a sudden who go down. A lot of vulnerable uh, Halfway through the first half, usually. And a lot of 100-minute games as well, uh, now, that the, um, now that the clock's being properly enforced. Yeah, somebody, somebody should make a study of this, actually, and, and, and just make a list of all the, the, the little tactics, the... The long stays on the ground, you know, the, the the fiddly bits of gamesmanship that must be being coached, and it can only be in the end because refereeing is is not in the greatest state as we know it. Referees aren't really on top of it, but I think ex-players. I mean, I'd love to, you know, you could sit with Dave and say, right, Dave, talk me through this game and um, who's doing what, and it'd be quite a long list these days of of gamesmanship, wouldn't it? Mm, yeah, well, certainly one coach did point out to me, Dave, that the goalkeepers were playing quite a prominent role in it now yeah simply because it's it's the one position that's that you, you can't take off the pitch that you, you know no matter what the injury is they, they can't be taken off at, at any time and allow the play allowed to go on so that's the easiest way to, to stop the game so for a tactical timeout and the huge now and it's not just about obviously it's not used just for different instructions and maybe tactical tweaks but also be used to to change momentum in games you know you, you're under periods of pressure you're under the cosh you know, just want to break it up for for the opposition and and calm things down a little bit maybe you should calm the stadium down take the sting out of the atmosphere and <laughs> I, I really don't see a way how referees can get around it even though I, I think it's a very as a coach it's a very useful tool to use but yeah how do you stop it I'm not sure, I'm not sure you can <laughs> no Everton Paul where did that performance against Brighton come from do you think now obviously they've got a free hit at home to Manchester City at the weekend do you think this might well come down to the last two games at Wolves home to Bournemouth yes that was that was a transformative performance of Brighton and I've never seen a team deploy so tactically so successfully against Brighton I've, I've not seen a team stop Brighton like that before and and it was thought out by Sean Dyche he you know, he said Brighton play in, in two boxes and then they then they get the ball wide. And if you stop them doing that, you nullify them. And they did spectacularly in the first half. They didn't look like Brighton and Havaldin anymore. I think that was partly because the manager made probably too many changes and the players looked very jaded. So Brighton didn't show in that first half. But my God, tactically, what a number Sean Dash did on them. I would imagine that lots of other clubs are looking at that and saying, well, that's that might be the way to play against Brighton because nobody had found out a way to stop them. But Everton... It was such an exuberant performance as well and such a big win for them that if those players have got anything about them, which they clearly have, they'll look at that and say, well, there's absolutely no way we should go down. We can go down if we're, if we're capable of doing that to Brighton. So let's have that and, and use it and, and go and play that way in the remaining games and, and stay up with a bit to spare. Mm, yeah, Forest, lest we forget, had their own transformative performance on the same night. They're at Chelsea at the weekend, Dave. They've got to start producing, even just in one game, a cogent performance away from the city ground, haven't they? They have. And if one thing Monday night has shown us is, is the fact that for games where you're not, you know, listen, against Manchester City and, and people like that, and, and perhaps even like Brighton, they have so much control in the way that they play. It's, you know, there is a certain approach you have to take. But if teams have been shown anything on certainly on Monday night, it's the fact that they have to go for the wins. They can't just rely on sitting tight and and hoping to break teams down because one, you know, they they maybe aren't defensively sound enough to do that and, and disciplined enough. But by attacking, you know, twenty one goals that were scored on Monday, fifteen of them by the teams that are in in relegation threatened uh, positions and. And that's just the way to do it. And I think the way Steve Cooper's teams play, they've got a nice balance. And now that's, you know, we've, we've spoke about all the, the the players that they've brought in and how difficult it's been to mix all that together. But now the quality that they've, they have brought in, 
that's starting to show. And someone like Morgan Gibbs White is just relishing the opportunities being given because of the the, the responsibility. I know that there's a big fee with him and a lot of it's add-ons and, and, and all that. But, you know, when you give somebody so young that responsibility, they don't always t- relish it and, and, and take it on and flourish. And, but he certainly, it looks like, he's, you know, being interviewed after a game, it looks like he's got the, the attitude that that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to be the main man. He wants to be the reason that they stay up. Yeah, he's taking all that mantle. Yeah, the the subtlety of the touch, well, I think was the fourth goal, was was just exquisite. As a final point, Paul, and using Gibbs White as an example, why didn't it work out for him at Wolves? Is it just a simple case of maturation and maybe being more at ease with Steve Cooper's empathetic style of management? Yes, I think it's probably all of those things. I mean, if, you know, if you get a 17-year-old who comes into a team and, and is told that he's he's the wonder kid and is expected to play that way every week and there's all this expectation around him. And I, I, I don't know what the coaching setup was, particularly at Wolves at that time, and whether it suited his, his development and his skills and his abilities. But where he is now is certainly the right place for him. And Steve Cooper is obviously the right coach for him because he's been allowed to develop his game and play his natural game and develop his game-changing abilities to great effect and it and it's been a huge benefit to Forrest because that's the thing that's what I like about it I think the fact that he's that he's allowed and he's encouraged to to elaborate and be inventive and creative and it's helping the team you know it's not a luxury because in the do you remember in the old days people would say oh you can't have luxury players in a relegation battle you know I mean what <laughs> I mean it, it's just not true if a if a if a gifted player contributes in the way that he does and I love watching him play and I, and I I love the fact that he plays so confidently these days and he's able to he's able to pull off the unexpected you know I mean this is this is what players love to watch isn't it he's a, he's a he's a super talent and he's a he's a huge help to that team sure that's a final point I was struck by the show of support for Steve Cooper following his chat on last week's podcast the forest fans clearly love his humanity and his feel for their club and they've not forgotten how far he's taken them. It begs the question, if, as we suggest, Leeds, Leicester and Southampton are favourites to go down, should they have been more careful with what they wished for in getting rid of their managers earlier in the season? Premature panic is never a good look or a good idea. And as Paul said, interim management rarely works out well. All it remains is for me to thank Paul and David for their insight and to thank Mikhail Antonio for his time. Like Steve Cooper, his popularity is no coincidence.